Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our, Our teaching team, team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith hope, and love. hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because, because they, they anchor us in something, something which can, can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching all right our scripture this morning is from luke 24 13 through 35. now that same day two of them were going to a village called emmaus about seven miles from jerusalem they were talking with each other about everything that had happened As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of the Lord. That's how you read some scripture, boy, wow. Uh, So, pardon me while, that's what, a teacher, for sure. Pardon me while I set some things up here. I said last week I got to come up with some anecdotes. Uh, So I could tell you all 
um, while I'm setting up about the lecture that I went to Thursday night on the cultural and linguistic evidence for the historicity of the Exodus story. <laughs> you can ooh, but it was really interesting. And the next time that I preach on the Exodus, look out. I told Kara about that this week and during her staff meeting, she goes, okay, that's on brand for you, Dan. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. Uh, good morning again, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for those of you who are uh, with us online and being a part of the community. And thank you to Michelle for jumping up and doing some camera work for us. Thank you very much for that. Um, we are in the third week of Eastertide. Remember, we talked about last week that Easter isn't just a day. It's a season on the liturgical calendar. It starts on Easter Sunday and lasts all the way through Pentecost, which this year is the last weekend in May. So it's a sizable season. It's a length of time where we think about and we study and we pray and we worship the resurrected Jesus. And we try to learn a little bit more about this idea that resurrection is not just a one-time occurrence, but resurrection is something that has happened. Resurrection is something that is happening. And resurrection is something that continues to happen. So one of the things that I think we can learn or discern from from the resurrected Jesus is more about our relationship with God, more about how we know God. And I think we find that in this story on on the road to Emmaus. And there's sort of three movements to it. It's, I've been trying to avoid the pun of a roadmap, but I don't know how else to say it. There's these three, three movements on the road to Emmaus, right? There's the things that we think we know all on our own, is one portion we'll talk about today. And then there's the things that we discern from Scripture itself. That's another portion we'll talk about. And then there's the question of how do we really experientially understand the character of God? How do we understand how that relationship is supposed to work? Those are the three kind of movements we'll look at today. And I think the story of the road to Emmaus lays that out actually fairly well for us. We have to back up for just a second and look at the context of it. Because in Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 24 here, The very first portion, verses 1 through 13, are Mary going to the tomb and finding it empty and Peter going to the tomb because he doesn't believe Mary and finding it empty. So this appearance by Jesus in this story in Luke's gospel, this is the very first appearance of the resurrected Jesus is to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that's not the way we heard it when we were talking about John's gospel and that's not necessarily the way you'd find it in Matthew or Mark's gospel as well. And so what I want to stress in pointing that out is What we have is not conflicting reports per se. We have different perspectives and different memories on how this thing laid out. Anytime you're talking about eyewitness uh, recollections of events, you're going to get different views, different perspectives from different people, and there will be different timelines and different orders and different things, the way they laid out. And so the point is not to say, well, why is Luke telling it this way and John's telling it this way? It's what do we have to learn from Luke that we didn't get from John's story? And what do we have from John that we didn't get from Matthew's story and so on and so forth to try and fill out the holistic bigger picture? So as we dig into this story on the road to Emmaus, I want to start with the things that we think we know about God. And so as we look at the first 11, 12 verses here, verses 13 to 24, we have these two disciples, one of whom we know is named Cleopas, the other one is not named. One of the leading theories about that is that that other disciple would be Cleopas' wife. I hate that theory. It's very possibly true, but I don't like the fact that the assumption is if Cleopas is named and the other disciple isn't, that everybody would just understand that to be Cleopas' wife. That just annoys me. But that's very likely what's going on here. 
But you have these two disciples, they're walking towards the village of Emmaus, so from Jerusalem toward, in a northwesterly direction. We don't exactly know where Emmaus is now. Uh, we, again, it's described in this northwesterly direction about seven miles away from Jerusalem. There's three or four different towns in the Holy Land now that lay claim to being the biblical Emmaus. But it's in a general direction, and they're discussing the things that have happened. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. They saw what had happened to Jesus. They have just now heard what, that the tomb that Jesus was laid in is empty. They're a little spooked, and they're heading home because well, the last place they want to be right now is Jerusalem. It's just too chaotic. There's too much going on. They just need to go back to some place of safety, right? Where you go, you go home. So they're heading to Emmaus. They're walking along the road. They're talking about what's happening. And here comes a guy walking in the same general direction that they are. We know from the story that it's Jesus that's walking up to them. They don't know this. And so when he asks what they're talking about, they look at him kind of dumbfounded, going, well, if you're coming from Jerusalem, there's no way you didn't hear about all these events that, that took place with Jesus of Nazareth. What are you doing? And he, well, I don't know, explain it to me. And so they proceed to do what I call some disciple-splaining, which, I mean, if you think about it, now they, I don't want to be harsh because they didn't know at the time that this was Jesus that they were talking to, but they eventually figure it out. And I, I can't help but imagine in that moment just the absolute feeling of being mortified to have just described to Jesus all the events and the meaning of the events that happened to Jesus. It would be a little dis, dissettling, I would think. But they were trying to explain from their point of view, from what they know about God, the meaning of these events to this stranger that they met on the road. And while that seems maybe in some ways to be kind of a dangerous thing to do, I think there are things that we can know innately as human beings about God. Now, there's a fancy seminary term here called general revelation. That will not be on the quiz later, I promise. But the idea is that as we look at creation, as we look at nature, as we look at the world and the universe around us, we are able to discern the existence of a creator. That just by looking around, we can sort of figure that out. And this is where faith and science can oftentimes be perceived to be in conflict with one another. I want to argue that they're not at all. That the questions that they are designed to answer, when they stay in those lanes, faith and science complement each other very, very well. Science is designed to tell us how things happen and what exactly is going on. Faith, philosophy, theology, these are things that try to explain to us why things are happening or why they're happening the way that they're happening. When faith and, science, when faith and theology and philosophy try to answer the what and how questions, things go horribly, horribly wrong. That's how you get flat earth theory and stuff like that. When science tries to answer the why questions, it's just not equipped to do that. And that's where the conflict can come in. But when they stay in, in, the, in their lanes and they try to answer the questions they're designed to answer, they work together very, very well. For instance, we can see when you look at creation, when you look at nature, when we can see that how intricately things are woven together, how different ecosystems rely on one another, it's almost impossible to me to not see some sort of design or the hand of a creator in all of that. And we can see it on the microscopic level, I won't get into the theory of entangled particles, but it's fascinating. Uh, but the idea that we've heard before that everything is connected in some way, shape, or form, there's actually evidence now on the atomic level, on the quantum level, that that's actually true. We don't understand exactly how it all works yet. Science is still working on that. But when we think about the why of everything being connected, it sort of makes sense if there's a single creator involved. 
We also see it on the cosmic level. I promise this won't be all science today. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But we see it on the cosmic level as well. There's something on the order of 26 constants. Gravity is a constant, okay? There's something on the order of 26 constants that if you plug them into a computer simulation in the way that we experience them, the computer will spit out a universe that looks very, very much like the universe as we experience it. But if you take out any one of those constants, or if you tweak one of those constants by just a hair, the whole thing falls apart. Those 26 things have to be exactly as they are for the universe to hold together and for life to be possible. Now, some will lean back into science and say, well, there's you know, this multiverse theory, right? There's just an infinite number of universes. We happen to be in the one where those 26 slots lined up exactly how they have to line up for life to happen. That's a theory. It's plausible. There's no direct evidence for it whatsoever. In fact, I think there's actually more direct evidence for there being a creator than for that particular theory but it's possible. But I think we can look at nature. I think you can go out into the woods and go walking around and see the way that things work together, that, like I said, various ecosystems overlap and interact with one another. And I just, I don't know how you look at that and don't see the hand of a creator. So we can know, I believe, on our own, that there is a God, that there is a design, that there is purpose, that there is meaning to life. But if those concepts can be difficult to understand sometimes, that's why we have art. That's why we have poetry. That's why we have psalms. Psalm 19, I want to read you the first four verses of Psalm 19. They say, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. If you understand ancient cosmology, the idea was that there was the earth and there was a dome over the earth, and in that dome was the sky and the clouds and the sun and the stars and all of this stuff. That dome was referred to as the firmament. That's what they're talking about in that psalm. Psalm 19 was actually C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm because C.S. Lewis had a very deep appreciation for the way that the ancients viewed cosmology. He understood scientifically they were dead wrong. There aren't pillars holding up the sky. But there's a poetry and there's a lyricism to the way the ancients used to look at the heavens and look at creation that he deeply appreciated. And I think he thought that the hand of the creator was self-evident when you looked at it in that fashion. So if you struggle to get your head around quantum mechanics, just look at the heavens. Look at the way they work. I don't know how you do that and don't see a creator. But while we can argue that that nature reveals the existence of that creator... It doesn't tell us much about that creator's character. It doesn't tell us much about our role in that creator's plan. For that, we have scripture. And so we move to the second portion of today's passage. Verses 25 to 27, Jesus, having heard his story, disciples explained to him, now turns around and says, okay, here's why that had to happen, though. You guys understand this, right? And he starts explaining scriptures to them. And it wasn't just a brief quick little discussion. It wasn't even a 25-minute sermon. This was a deep, all-day dive into scriptures. How do we know that? Well, when you look at verse 27, it says, and then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets. Well, Moses is referring to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible. And all the prophets would be the prophetic literature. There are 17 prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible. It's a lot of scrolls. I'm not saying Jesus was carrying all of them, but when you start going through all the material there, it's going to take a while. If you've ever done one of the 40 Orchards all-day scripture circle events, you know, that go like eight hours, 
and you feel just completely drained at the end of it. That's got to be what this was like. This wasn't a short conversation. This was a deep, deep dive into Scripture. And in explaining how his death, although again, they don't know that it's Jesus yet that they're talking to, but in explaining how Jesus' death fits into the witness of Moses and the prophets, Jesus is using Scripture to describe the loving, self-sacrificial character of God. Now, the fancy seminary term here is special or specific revelation. General revelation tells us that there is a God. Specific revelation tells us things about that God. Again, that won't be on the quiz. You'll still get a donut if you don't remember that term, I promise. But specific revelation is how we know things about God in Scripture in itself. Now, Jesus obviously had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't have access to the New Testament at the time. We do, and we often lean on that for this kind of specific revelation. Why? Well, John 14, 9 has Philip asking Jesus, how do we know more about God? And what is Jesus' response? If you see me, you see the Father. If we want to know more about God, look to Jesus. Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection tell us a ton about God's character and about our purpose in God's design. In the letter to the Hebrews, verse 1 says, He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. The exact imprint of God's very being. Again, reinforcing this idea. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. Paul's letter to the Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This argument comes up over and over and over again, almost beating us over the head with a hammer, which I don't know about you, but sometimes spiritually I need that. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. All right, well, what does Jesus have to tell us about God? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says that God is love. God's very nature is love, and not brotherly love, not romantic love, but self-sacrificial love, the kind of deep, abiding relationship love that God has not only in the Godhead, but God wants with, with humanity. Pardon me. What does that love look like? 1 John 3.16 says, Love looks like laying down your life for your friends. Jesus on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. So we talk about the resurrected Jesus. We talk about God saying, look what I went through and I was glad to go through for you, for us individually, for us as a community. That is the ultimate expression of God's self-sacrificial love for us and the kind of self-sacrificial love God wants us to have for each other. So scripture and analysis of scripture can tell us an enormous amount about God. It can tell us an enormous amount about our relationship with God. That's why so many books have been written about Scripture. And if you know me, you know I love me some books. If you've ever been on a video conference with me, a Zoom call or anything like that, you know that the background that I have is bookshelves, just filled with seminary books and other books that I've collected over the years. I love reading and I love learning through reading. Unfortunately, a very inconvenient truth for somebody like me is that you can't learn everything in a book. I'm still trying. But you can't. I do know and understand that much at least. So that leads us to our third movement, which is how do we really experience the character of God? How do we really understand and live into what God is like? And that brings us to the third portion of this story. In verses 28 to 32, this is where Cleopas and presumably Mrs. Cleopas figure out who they're with. But how do they figure out who they're with? 
Well, they come to the town of Emmaus finally, and it looks like Jesus, who they still don't know is Jesus, is going to move on and keep on walking. And they say, no, it's late in the day. You don't want to be out on the road at night. Come, you know, stay with us, and we'll fix you dinner and hang out and play a board game. I don't know what they were going to do, but they were going to be together. And it's when they sit down, and it's when he breaks the bread, that's when they recognize him. All of the time that they had spent with him, all the time that you know, he'd been explaining scriptures and they'd been studying together, and they still didn't know who it was until they sat down for a meal together. It's then that they realized that the burning in their hearts that they were feeling as he was explaining all that scripture to them, what that was all about. That was about being in relationship with the resurrected Christ. They didn't know it at the time. It came to them in that moment. I think one of the most important lessons, not only in the walk of faith, but in life in general, is that the things that matter most can't just be learned here, can't just be learned in a book. They have to be felt here. They have to be experienced in real life, in relationship with other people. It's relationship where we recognize the resurrected Christ. It's in relationship with each other, and with God that we truly live into and experience what God's character is all about. That's what I think they get to in this story of the road of Emmaus. I mentioned earlier that we have art because sometimes concepts are difficult to get our heads around with just words or just book learning, and that's why I brought in this other piece of artwork today. This is is called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it's a piece of art by, uh, by Rembrandt. And there's a few interesting things about it as our kids come back and rejoin us. Hi, kids. There's a few interesting things about this particular piece of artwork. I brought it in because, not because I want to get too deep into the story of the prodigal son, but because for me, this is one of my favorite images of God. That if you're trying to use artwork and an image to understand God better, I think this is one of the best ones to look at, personally. What's interesting about it is that this scene that's depicted in this painting never actually occurs in the story. If you read the story of the prodigal son, the older brother and the younger brother are never in the same place at the same time. And yet here they are in the same room at the same time. So why did Rembrandt do it that way? And he did it that way because if you're going to use a static image to try to summarize this story, putting those characters together, if you look at the relationship of those figures to each other, all of the elements of the story are there, right? If you look at the way that the younger brother is on his knees and dressed in rags and missing his shoe, the story of him hitting rock bottom is right there in front of you. If you look at the older brother, who's the figure furthest to the right, you can see how he's positioned above both his father and the younger brother, looking down at them, saying, are you kidding me, dad? This guy spit in your face and you're going to give him this party and you're going to take care of him and take him back in as though none of this ever happened? Where's the fairness in that? I've followed all the rules. I don't get a party. What's going on? You can see that in the way that these figures are positioned to each other. But most importantly, you see the way that the father is positioned towards the younger son in this soft, comforting, loving embrace. A soft, comforting, loving embrace that wasn't earned, that wasn't deserved, that wasn't because the younger son had done anything in particular, but because that's the character of the Father. That's the character of God. You can see, and I encourage you during the Eucharist to come over and take a look at it and look up close, and you can see all these elements in there. 
But when you see the softness and the, the, the expression on the father's face and the way he's reaching around and comforting his son, the very fact that that's undeserved, the very fact that that's unfair is what makes it so radical, is what makes it so good, is what makes it God. The relationship of those characters to one another tell you everything you need to know about the character of God, about the character of God on display in that story. We learn about the character of God in relationship. So yes, we can marvel at the wonder of God's hand in creation, right? We can use the everyday awe of nature to discern that there is a hand behind it. There is intelligence, there is design, there is a creator out there. And I strongly recommend if you find yourself in a position where you're having trouble feeling God's presence, get outside. Get outside and get into nature. Turn off your brain and just observe what's around you. See the way that nature interacts with itself, the way that creation is knitted together in this precise fashion. I promise you, you will feel God's presence in that. And we can immerse ourselves in the scriptures, right? And we can soak up all the wisdom and the knowledge that they have for us. And I actually hope we will be able to do more of that this summer. We'll talk about that next week, I think. It's ironic, I believe, that biblical literacy in the West is at one of the lower points it's ever been at. And yet it's never been easier to access the Bible. We're all walking around with devices in our pockets where we can access the Bible. But we don't dig into it. We don't share it with each other the way that we used to. That's one of the things I hope we can work on this summer. But to truly know God and to truly understand God's love and wisdom and grace and mercy, that requires relationship. So what Kara talks about next week, we're going to talk about what we're going to do next summer. I really hope folks go home this week and spend time thinking about it. How do we as a community want to show up for each other in learning environments, in community environments, in volunteering environments, whatever it is, how do we want to come together and be part of this creation, to be part of God's plan, to be part of bringing the kingdom into fruition together? Because it's in that relationship with each other that we truly experience the character of God. That's when the light bulb goes on. That's when we see God in relationship. The triune God is loving relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So understanding God obviously requires that relationship with us and with Him. That's where we truly meet God. That's where we truly have a relationship. So as you come up today for Eucharist and you're part of the breaking of the bread, remember, that's where these folks that were scared and freaked out and fleeing Jerusalem for their safety, that's where they met God in that breaking of the bread, in the taking of the wine, in that relationship moment, that's where they saw the resurrected Jesus. And that's where you can see the resurrected Jesus too, together, in that moment, in relationship. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.